Isn't it good to be together and worship? I like to have a turn and greet today. We got to say hello to each other and reintroduce ourselves a bit. And then there's a line today in worship that spoke to me in the second service where Austin and the team were singing, blow through the caverns of my soul. Blow through the caverns of my soul. Isn't that like, you think about that, like Holy Spirit, God, come and meet me in those empty places, those places of hurt and pain, those places where I still need work because I, I've got some stuff in me that still needs to be worked out because all of us do. And so, I don't know, that, that line, I just love that. Blow through the caverns of my soul. Isn't that good? We got to declare that together today. Anyway, all that's just extra this morning. Um, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you. I'm here with my friend Melissa, and she's going to read scripture for us in just a minute. But we are in week three of our series called Intention. And in this series, we're walking through the tension of the last seven moments of the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And our goal is to dive into those and to really try and experience, not just on an informational, but on an emotional level, the tension of what Jesus and his followers are walking through, that we might be more like him at the end of this journey. And today, we're walking into the tension of what's called the denial The moment when Peter shockingly denies Jesus three times. And yet before we get to that, we are going to look at another section of Scripture. Today we're looking at two sections of Scripture that at first glance might feel separate, but in fact are actually very much connected and woven together. And so if you have a Bible this morning, you can grab it and turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 53 and following. And as you turn, let me remind you where we are in the story. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples to pray. Uh, Judas goes off to betray him, but the other 11 join him. And in the garden, Jesus agonizes. He goes through suffering as he imagines and gets a foretaste and a glimpse of what he will actually endure on the cross. After this time of prayer, Judas arrives with a crowd of soldiers to arrest Jesus. He kisses Jesus in in an act of hypocritical betrayal. And then Jesus is arrested and hauled away. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53. Melissa. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the court of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could, not, so they could put him to death, but they could not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. 
Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophecy. And the guards took him and beat him. Thanks, Melissa. That's a, that's a tough passage to read. Um, there's some heaviness in there as it closes with, they spit on him and beat him. And yet, more is happening in this passage than maybe we might imagine. There's more than just the suffering of Jesus when we get into it. So let me give you a little background so that we can really dive into this section of our passage today. The Jews always prided themselves on having a legal system with a supreme sense of fairness. See, as the people of God, they thought they had the justice of God, and so they really worked hard to have this reflected in their legal system. This was God's command to them. Listen to this from Deuteronomy chapter 16. Again, this is the foundation of the Jewish legal system. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. So this is God's command for his people to have a justice system that was just and righteous and fair and true. And here's how this would play out in the ancient Israel in Jesus' day. In every town, there would be a gathered council called a Sanhedrin. And Sanhedrin is just a fancy word for gathered council. And in most of these towns, the Sanhedrin was 23 of the town elders. In very small towns, perhaps seven. And in small, tiny villages, three. But in Jerusalem, which was the capital city of the nation, there was what was called the Great Sanhedrin. The Great Sanhedrin had 71 men, with the head of it being the high priest. And this group was like the final court of appeal. Think of the Supreme Court in our nation. It's sort of like the, the Great Sanhedrin. Now, especially in cases that involved the death penalty, but for, for every case, all Sanhedrins would follow three core judicial procedures. These pr procedures were central to the system, and they prevented corruption, and they ensured that justice would happen, again, especially in cases that might involve death. Here are the three core procedures. I want to walk you through them, and we're going to see how they're reflected in our passage today. Number one, a public trial. In other words, nothing was to happen at night. Proceedings were to take place in a public venue like the temple courts, never just in someone's home. And the idea here was that openness and transparency would enable the public to act as a built-in layer of accountability. In other words, if the people out there were seeing that something was happening wrongly, they could stand up and say, wait a minute, hold the show. So right away, when Mark tells us that they take Jesus in the middle of the night, it's about 12 p.m. at this point, to the courtyard of the high priest to this private home, this private residence, we can see right away, this is not going according to plan. That's principle number one. Here's principle number two. Solid evidence. No one in Israel could be convicted without the testimony of two to three eyewitnesses. First-hand specifics. 
In, in these kind of cases, especially with the death penalty, no hearsay or generalities were allowed. If that sort of stuff started entering in, the entire case would be thrown out. Listen again from Deuteronomy chapter 19. These are God's words to his people about justice in the legal system. Listen to the strong language. One witness, God says, is not enough to convict anyone accused of, a, of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand, the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then due to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. That's a strong word, isn't it? Evil. You must purge the evil from among you. You see, for God's people to do injustice in the name of justice under the banner of his name is not God's eyes evil. And so his calling is, make sure you have solid evidence. Ensure that you have good information and faithful witnesses before a ruling is made. By the way, one of the safeguards that they threw in is this. If you were a key witness in a case resulting in the death penalty, you were required to cast the first stone. And you'll remember that Jesus himself enacts this very principle in John chapter 8 when he says to the men who accused this woman caught in adultery, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, if your testimony here is true and your motives are pure and righteous, then by all means. Jesus is dialing into this principle that false testimony was absolutely intolerable in the Jewish system. And so now listen again to how Mark tells our story today. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some, some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him saying, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. You see, Jesus did talk about the destruction of the temple, didn't he? If you read the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 13, he talks about it clearly, but he never says that he will destroy the temple. And so here again, we have an example of false testimony, twisted truth, partial truth, and now the second core principle is broken as well. Here's the third, the right of proper defense. Anyone accused, anyone being tried in Israel in Jesus' day was supposed to have defense. They were allowed to have someone defend them. And as part of this protection, especially in death penalty cases, a person was never allowed to testify against themselves. They were not, not allowed to self-incriminate. They were supposed to have representation. Listen to verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer what is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Isn't that a strange, I mean, 
clearly accused of something he didn't do, clear false testimony, and Jesus says nothing. Is this just Jesus being so, so humble that he won't speak out and defending of himself? No, friends. This is Jesus without saying a word, reminding everyone in attendance that this trial is a sham and that the only way to find guilt in him is to twist and distort the truth. Again, it says, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now, this is a key question in this moment because the question here is not, Jesus, are you God? Sometimes we hear this question and we read into it knowing a bit more of the story than the readers would have and we think, Jesus, are you God? That's not the question. The question is, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who has come to overthrow Rome? And the reason this is asked is because everyone in that day believed a Messiah would come to free the Jews from the Romans to overthrow this empire. And so the high priest asked this question very specifically because he is looking for a charge that will merit a state-sanctioned execution. You see, in this world, the Jews, under Roman authority, were not permitted to execute the death penalty. They could not put someone to death. Only Rome can do that. And so the high priest is looking for something that he can take to the Romans and say, this guy's a rebel. This guy's an insurgent. He's causing trouble. He wants to overthrow your government. You should kill him. That's what he's after. Are you the Messiah? Listen to Jesus' answer. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Here's Jesus' response. I am not just the one who has come to judge Rome. I am the one who has come to judge the world. I am the one from Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm 110 who comes with the authority of the throne of God. I am the divine one, the incarnate one who is in your midst. And N.T. Wright says it this way. Jesus' answer says in a tight-packed phrase, yes, I am a true prophet. Yes, what I said about the temple will come true. Yes, I am the Messiah and you will see me vindicated and my vindication will mean that I share the very throne of Israel's God. At last, the masks are off, the secrets are out, the cryptic sayings and parables are left behind. The Son of Man stands before the official ruler of Israel declaring that God will prove him in the right and the court in the wrong. And the court, the people, the high priest, they know exactly what Jesus is saying here. They're not confused in any way. This is why the high priest tears his clothes. This is why he says, blasphemy. This is why they all condemned him as worthy of death. This is why they begin to spit on him and blindfold him and strike him with their fists and beat him because Jesus claims to be God himself. He's the Messiah, but he is the divine one. Meanwhile, by the way, those of you who are Hamilton fans get that reference. Meanwhile, you have to kind of say it a certain way, don't you? Don't you? Me? No Hamilton fans here today? You're like, this is a serious moment for a joke, Pastor Dave. Okay. Meanwhile, Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. 
I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow was one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. All right, as we first consider these denials of Jesus by Peter, I want to point out that if we were reading the Gospel of Mark as first century believers, this part of the story would surprise us a bit. None of us in here are probably too surprised that this goes down the way it does because most of us have heard this story before. We anticipate this moment. We anticipate this failure of Peter. But if we were first century believers in the first century church where Peter was an esteemed and revered leader and we were reading the Gospel of Mark for the first time, we might be a little shocked. Because up until now in the story, Peter has seemed pretty solid. In Mark chapter 8, he's the one who declares, Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, while all the other guys are silent. He is the one earlier in this chapter, in verse 29, who says, Jesus, even if everybody else falls away and betrays you and doesn't stand by your side, I'll be there. And then last week in the garden, if you are here, you remember that the, so- the soldiers come and Peter draws his sword and he cuts off the ear of the high priest. And even though this is ill-advised, even though this is not how Jesus would want his disciples to act. It does seem to paint the picture of a follower who was bold and brave and loyal to a fault. Furthermore, some of you notice this. In in the first section of scripture we, we read, back in verse 54, we're told that when they arrest Jesus in the garden and they haul him away in the middle of the night to the home of the high priest, Peter follows. This would have put Peter in grave danger, but Peter follows, he goes to the very home where Jesus is being tried. And guess what? None of the other disciples do. Of the 11, he is the only one to go. You see, our picture of Peter up until this point is that that he is the most courageous. He is the most committed. He is the most loyal. He is the most faithful kind of disciple that there is. And so when Jesus tells him back in verse 30, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. As a reader, we, like Peter, are tempted to think, well, well, wait a minute, I think you got the wrong guy, Jesus. It's Judas, right? Judas will deny you three times, not Peter. Peter's thinking, not me. Friends, Mark is setting us up. He's leading us down this path to ask a very pertinent question, and the question is this, can even the most faithful disciple be faithful to Jesus in their own strength? Can even Peter be faithful, the most faithful of them all? And to make his point oh so clear, Mark does this amazing thing. He takes the story of Jesus and he weaves it together throughout this entire chapter with the story of Peter. He wants us to compare them. He wants us to see Peter and Jesus side by side so that we get a very clear picture of who they are. And there's some irony when we look at them together. We see Jesus' faithfulness and loyalty to God 
in contrast to Peter's unfaithfulness and disloyalty to Jesus. Jesus is mocked as a false prophet, while at the very same time, his prophecy about Peter's denial is actually coming true. Jesus tells the truth about who he is in the face of crucifixion. Peter denies who he is with just a mere accusation. Jesus says, I'm the son of God, the son of man who sits at the right hand of the mighty one. He clearly associates himself with the father, but Peter, he won't even say the name of Jesus. Notice how he says it. He doesn't say, I don't know Jesus. He says, I don't know this man. Tim Keller says it this way. Mark has deliberately interspersed and intertwined two stories the story of Peter's denial and the story of Jesus' arrest and trial. Because he wants us to compare and see the parallels between these two stories. Peter is also on trial, just like Jesus. And in the end, Peter fails. And he fails big. Look at the middle of verse 70 with me. This is Peter's third denial. The third time he's denied Jesus, it says, after a little while, in other words, he's now had some time to think about it. This is not just an impulse response. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. He began to call down curses. Scholars tell us that in Greek, this means Peter was cursing Jesus. He's slandering Jesus. He's speaking ill of Jesus. He is swearing that he is not a follower. And so what do we learn from Peter here, from this moment? What do we learn from these denials? Two things. Two things, Ian. That's right, buddy. Two things. Here's the first one. The danger of self-confidence and the power of God-reliance. The danger of self-confidence and the power of God-reliance. You see, if we back up in the story to verse 27, we find that Jesus and his 11 are en route from the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has already gone off to betray him, so it's Jesus and the 11. They're going to the garden, and then Jesus says to the 11, he turns to them and he says, verse 27, you will all fall away. See, it's not just Judas who'll betray me. You will all fall away, he says. And then listen to Peter's response. Verse 29, Peter declared, Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. And that's a bold statement, isn't it? And kind of a jerk move, really, like right in front of all of his buddies, right? Like, I won't do it. These chumps may betray you, Jesus, right? But not me, I got your back no matter what. They may fall away, but they're lightweights compared to me. It's like, Peter, do you really think you're that much better than all your buddies? And Peter's like, yeah, I do, actually. Um, And then Jesus doubles down. Listen to this. Verse 30, truly I tell you, that's Jesus' way of saying, oh, hold the show, listen up. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself, Peter, will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. You think Peter's pretty confident in himself? You think he's confident and bold in his faithfulness and loyalty and courage? And then 
he fails. He fails three times. He fails big. But then as the story continues in the Gospel of John, we have this amazing, amazing story. Jesus has been crucified. He's gone to the cross. He's died. He's been put in the tomb. And then news starts to float around that Jesus is alive, that the tomb is empty, that he's risen from the dead. And people have actually seen the risen Lord. But Peter, Peter, so ashamed of his failure, has left Jerusalem and he's gone back to Galilee. He's gone back to the Sea of Galilee and he's gone back to his old life. He's gone back to fishing until one day, one day, some of you know the story, Jesus shows up. Peter's out on a boat, he's fishing with his guys and he looks to the shore and there's Jesus. Some of you will remember that Peter is so excited to see Jesus that he's like a little kid. He can't even wait for the boat to get to the shore. He just dives in and he swims for it and he gets to shore and then Jesus invites the disciples to share a meal with him. And then after the meal, he pulls Peter aside and kind of mirroring the three denials of Peter, Jesus asked Peter three questions. And and there's a whole lot happening in that story that we'll unpack at a later time. But today I want you to notice one thing, one thing that you may have missed before. This is John chapter 21, verse 15. Notice the question, the first question that Jesus asked Peter. He pulls him aside and he says, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Are you still so self-assured, still so so self-confident, still so convinced that you are more loyal than everyone else, that you have what it takes, Peter, to be faithful in your own strength? And of course, this time, Peter doesn't say, yes, Lord, I do. I love you more than these. He just says, I love you. You see, one of the lessons I believe Peter learns here is that as confident and bold and loyal and faithful as he wants to be, without the power and strength of God in his life, he can't do it. He won't make it. Friends, one of the things that's amazing about the Bible is that when you start to peel back the layers the truth just gets better and better and better. Some of you know that Mark is the author of this gospel. You know that because it's called the gospel of Mark, right? So John Mark actually wrote this gospel. But his primary source, his primary information source, Mark's eyewitness testimony, scholars tell us, comes from none other than Peter himself, In other words, when you read the Gospel of Mark, you're really reading the Gospel according to St. Peter. And friends, if this is Peter's story, if this is Peter's recount of Jesus' life and ministry, then, then why would Peter, as a respected, honored leader in the early church, highlight his own failure so vividly? Why would he share in such detail about the moment when he abandoned and denied his Lord? You see, you notice all the details of our story today? In the courtyard, by the fire, the servant girl. Who would have had access to that information? Only Peter. So why would he share this? Why would he say, world, I want you to know how absolutely wretched I was to the Lord? You see, because I think it's this. I think it's Peter has learned something that he wants us to learn that it was actually in his own failure that he learned the most important lesson there was about following Jesus. 
And that's that he couldn't do it. That he didn't have it on his own. That by himself, he didn't have the courage or the faithfulness or the strength or the character that he thought he did. But that God could do it through him. You see, Peter learns through this whole episode, I can't do it alone, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And friends, when when Peter learns this invaluable lesson, God takes Peter's plan B and he makes it his plan A. Here's what I mean, and it's our final point today. After Peter fails, after Peter blows it, you can relate to this, this moment probably with some example from your life. He is tempted to think, well, I guess that's it for me. You know, I, I thought, Lord, I really thought you were going to use me. I thought you were going to do something special in my life. I, I thought you had plans to do something great in me and through me in this world. I really thought that I was going to be someone and do something, but but I blew it and I messed up and I betrayed you and I turned my back on you and I utterly and completely failed. So I guess, I guess I'll just move on to plan B. But then Jesus shows up on the shore that day and he calls Peter over and essentially he says, Peter, I ain't done with you yet. And we read the book of Acts to discover that Peter goes on from there to become a great leader. That he is the primary leader in the early church that he faces down time and time again the authorities who are seeking to kill the movement and persecute him, that he he preaches boldly and thousands of people come to faith in Christ. And at the end of his life, history tells us this, Peter actually gives his life. Peter is actually himself crucified the way his Lord was, except for that Peter is not crucified right side up. He is actually crucified upside down. And the reason he is is because he would not deny his Lord again. But instead, he confesses him boldly, even in the face of great peril. You see, Peter thought his life had been downgraded to plan B, but God came and said, no way, Peter, because I love to take this world's plan Bs and turn them into my plan As. And some of us need to hear that today. Some of you are in that place where you're thinking, how did this happen How did I get here? Where did things go wrong? This is not how I mapped it out. This is not my plan. This is not how I envisioned my life going. How, Lord, did I get here? How did things get so messed up relationally, financially, emotionally, physically? This is not what I wanted. This is not, Lord, what I thought you wanted. This is not how things were supposed to go. And then you're tempted, friends, to think that now your life is nothing more than plan B. Because that's what the enemy wants us to think. You're nothing. You're a failure. You've blown it. God can't use you anymore. All the hopes and dreams and goals of your life are over. Things will never now ever be again the way they are supposed to be. They'll never be as right or rich or good or satisfying as they would have been if, if, fill in the blank. But here's what we see in Peter's story. God loves to take our plan Bs and use them for his plan As. He loves to take our failures, this world's brokenness, our pain, and use it for our growth. So, so friends, do you have what it takes to walk faithfully with Jesus in this world? Not on your own. 
Not in your own strength, but, but, here's what we learned from Peter. If you learn to turn to Jesus and rely on him, he can take even your darkest failures, this world's most horrific brokenness, and turn your plan B into his plan A. He still wants to use you. He's still working in you. He has not forgotten you. He still sees you. And you can take that truth to the bank, friends. Because he even took Peter after denying the Lord three times, after calling down curses on his Savior and used him for magnificent things in this world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this this story. I thank you for Peter. I just think about him telling this story as Mark writes it down. And I just wonder how that moment went. I thank you for it, though. I thank you for his willingness to be so honest, for his humility, for his sense that it wasn't about him anymore, but it really was about you, that he wasn't good enough, Lord, but that you are. I pray, God, that you would use his story to encourage our stories. And I pray specifically today, Lord, for people in this room who are discouraged, who, are, who feel like things have gone wrong, who feel like there has been damage or hurt or pain done that is irrevocable or unredeemable, God, that you would move into that space and remind us of your power and your majesty and your goodness, your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God of plan B, that you love to take the hardest things and make them great things. Help us to trust you. Help us to see you. Help us to look to you. Help us to give you all the glory, and we will in Jesus' name. Amen.